You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome. To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back. And welcome for the first time to our new listeners. Because we've gotten a lot of them over the last week as we have ramped up to the 2020 Buffalo Bills regular season. A season as our friend Jim Nance from CBS would say, unlike any other, due primarily to the optimism that accompanied this team coming into the 2020 season. Well, let me just tell you, no overreaction Monday for us. Can you imagine what the fan base would have been like if we would have lost to the Jets or even lost in embarrassing fashion? No siree, not this time. The hype train keeps right on rolling into week two, but we're not done yet. We're going to close the book on some week one narratives here on this Thursday edition of the Bruce Exclusive. And tomorrow we will turn the page to week two against the Miami Dolphins. This being the first episode of the Bruce Exclusive that was post-game, rather than pre-game, allow me to kind of remind you how we do things here. I feel like when a game is over, there are certain narratives that come out of that game, and you can allow them to sort of take on a life of their own over the course of the week on social media, through the regular media, articles are written, conversations are had, discussions are beaten into the ground. And on the Thursday episode of the Bruce exclusive, I like to kind of try to put a bow on these narratives, give you my opinion on them, see where we're at as far as a fan base goes, get a pulse. And then on the Friday edition, we will move into next week. We will do your almighty takes as well. So if you're listening to this, it's too late, but just so you're aware, anytime between the game ending on Sunday or Monday or whenever the game is, and Wednesday evening, you can send me an email, I am Bruce Almighty at yahoo.com, or you can send me a DM on Twitter, or you can send me a DM on Instagram, and you can tell me what your almighty take of the week is. Your almighty take is a prediction that you believe will come true about the upcoming game that does not include the score. 
It is the best take possible. Not necessarily the hottest take, but the best take. Something that's going to make me go, huh, that's a good point. I think that might happen. And then tomorrow I will put them in four buckets based on the probability, I believe, of them coming to fruition. But we are not here to talk about that right now. We are here to talk about narratives. So, overall, going into the game, there was a narrative that sort of became flesh, if you will. It kind of took on a life of its own about the quality of the win that was necessary against the New York Jets. Was it okay to just get the W? Or was a certain amount of dominance necessary for you to feel confident about this team moving forward? So we have talked in the past on different podcasts about win quality being predictive. And I'm going to circle back to that now for those of you who are new listeners. Wins are not predictive of future wins. Win quality is predictive of future wins. So the fact that you won the game is not necessarily predictive of you winning future games. How you win the game is predictive of future games. If you are dominant over good teams, you're probably a good team. If you get fluky and beat a good team, you might not necessarily be a good team. You might actually be the worst team. Just because Team A beat Team B on that Sunday doesn't mean Team A is a better team than Team B. Lesser teams win on Sunday all the time. That happens all the time. But we're not talking about one data point. We're talking about trends and probabilities. And win quality is predictive. So it does matter how you beat a team. And having a game that was the most secure win of the weekend based on win probability is a good start. I know the final score says 10 points, but have you ever heard that phrase? It wasn't as close as the score indicated. We actually have a metric for that now, and it's based on win probability. So you can go to the win probability tables and look at the graphs and see that that game was pretty much out of hand quickly. And it never really got back into control for the New York Jets. So win quality does matter. It does matter how you beat a team. Because how you beat a team tells you more about whether or not you will continue to win than the fact that you beat that team in and of itself. Getting a W is great, and we should always strive to get a W. In the regular season, when you're trying to figure out whether or not this team has what it takes to win playoff games, which I think we can agree is the goal this year, winning playoff games, we've gotten to the playoffs twice, it's time to win some games in the playoffs. And if you are trying to establish what the probability is that you will be able to achieve that as an organization, then how you win matters. How you win is really important. And I think that that was a good win over a mediocre to below average team. So regardless of whether or not you thought coming in, we needed to just get and eke out a 17 to 16 win, or whether or not we needed something more dominant, I think we can all come out of that going, okay, that looked like a good team beating up on a lesser team. That's what that looked like to me. Last year in week one, 
it did not look like a playoff team beating down a 7-9 and nine team. That's not what it looked like. It looked like a toss-up game where it could have gone either way based on a thing here and a thing there. This year, it didn't look like that. It looked like a better team beating a worse team, and that matters. So, moving on to the next narrative to come out of the game, and obviously it's Josh Allen. Josh Allen, career day, 300 yards, career highs in yardage, completions, attempts, quarterback rating over 100. It was a good day for Josh Allen. Obviously, he fumbled the ball, but let's just talk about the passing first. I think really when you come to evaluate Josh Allen, there's really an important ratio that you're really doing in your head, whether or not you might realize you're doing it or not. And it is plays that the average quarterback wouldn't likely make versus plays that an average quarterback wouldn't likely miss. And that's always going to be the rub when it comes to Josh Allen. Obviously, I'm talking about the John Brown throw and the Dawson Knox throw, both of which should have been touchdowns, but he missed them wide while rolling to his left. Those are plays that an average quarterback wouldn't likely miss because they were so far off. But every week there are plays that an average quarterback wouldn't likely make out of Josh Allen. The ability to make a free rusher miss in the pocket, roll to his right, and pick up a deep play down the sideline to John Brown. That's not the first time Josh Allen has done that. It won't be the last time Josh Allen does that. The key for Allen as it continues to grow is minimizing the plays that an average quarterback wouldn't likely miss while maintaining or increasing the plays that the average quarterback wouldn't likely make. Because that's really what Josh Allen's about. There is a level of variance to Josh Allen. And there's always going to be a level of variance to players who are athletic and have a big arm and don't necessarily have the best ball placement. The question is, do the highs outweigh the lows? Is the juice worth the squeeze? Knowing that we may have to put up with one or two of those misses. Because other people make those misses too. But they give you elite throws. Other people make those misses too, but they add something else to the table. And Josh Allen does too. That was an above average game for Josh Allen. Not an elite game, not an amazing game. You can't have an elite game when you turn the ball over twice and you miss an opportunity to put points on the board, that obviously. But it was an above average game. It's in the argument as far as his better games, maybe his best game. And that's improvement and I'm here for it. But instead, we get the same old voices from the community out there who just consistently finds reasons to hate on Josh Allen. I just can't deal with the lack of intellectual honesty and the logical processing or lack thereof behind takes. People say, that was a terrible throw. That was a terrible throw. It was awful. But if he misses it by 15 yards or if he misses it by five yards, it's still incomplete. It's not like you can get multiple throws penalized because of how egregious it was. It still just counts as one incompletion, folks. So regardless of how egregious the miss is, 
it still just counts as one play. And that's bad. And I'm not here defending that. I'm just saying it's still a one bad play. In a sea of other plays. Would I prefer it not happen? Yes, of course I'd prefer it not happen. But that's a play that an average quarterback wouldn't likely miss. But there are plenty of plays that an average quarterback wouldn't likely make. As we've previously outlined. But the reason why Josh Allen had 300 yards despite throwing an egregious pass or two was because we needed him to in order to win. And that was one of the things that you and I have talked about when we discuss whether or not 300-yard games matter. I've told you repeatedly, 300-yard games matter if necessary to help the team win. Chalk it up, ladies and gentlemen. Josh Allen needed to throw for 300 yards for the Bills to win this game because the run game traditionally with running backs was not going to help you. We had to move the ball through the air and we had to score points and he did it. Check the box. Can you throw for 300 yards when you need to in order for a win? Yes. Yes, Josh Allen can. Can he do it consistently? I don't know. We've only seen it once, but we know he can do it once which is a start. The other thing that came out of the game in regards to Josh Allen was the running and specifically the designed runs from the quarterback. So I'm going to start with the conclusion and then we're going to go through the processing. I have zero issues with the design runs for the quarterback. If you wanted a quarterback who was not going to help you In that way, you shouldn't have taken Josh Allen. You knew when you took him that mobility, playmaking ability was part of the upside that you hoped would help offset any ball placement issues and erratic passing. You knew that when you took him. If you wanted a quarterback who was not going to give you those things, then you shouldn't have taken him. And if you're going to build an offense that doesn't allow you to weaponize those traits, then you're doing Josh Allen a disservice. Josh Allen will never be a pinpoint pocket precision passer at all times. Never. He will never be that. So if you are not letting him do the things that you were hoping will offset any ball placement issues he may have, then that's just going to be a net negative for you. You want the quarterback to be a net positive, but you're taking away one of the factors that helps offset a flaw in his skill set if you take away the design runs. Well, I'm okay scrambling, Bruce. I'm just not okay with design runs. Okay, let's talk about that. Why are you not okay with design runs? Okay, well, first off, he's going to get hurt. The most dangerous play for a quarterback in the NFL isn't a sack. It isn't a scramble and it isn't a design run. It's a knockdown. That is the most dangerous play. How do I know this? Because people did the math. John Veros at Sports Info Solutions ran the numbers. The risk of a quarterback being injured on a design run is one every 236 plays. The risk of a scrambling quarterback is almost equal to the quarterback who is sacked. 
once every 91.7 plays for a scrambling quarterback, and once every 92.5 plays for a guy getting sacked. However, if you get knocked down, the quarterback gets hit as he releases the ball. The player is hurt once every 67.3 plays. There is no statistical evidence that indicates that designed runs are more dangerous than other runs. In fact, there is evidence to the opposite. Why is that qualitatively? When you scramble and when you're in the pocket, people are coming at you from weird angles at weird parts of your body. The backs of the knees, from behind you, you can't prep for a hip because you don't know what's coming. If you were a ball carrier, there is a designed play flow with designed blocking. Sometimes you can run out of bounds and avoid a hit entirely. Sometimes you can slide. But even if you get hit, you see them coming. You can brace for impact. You can prepare your ball as a ball carrier. You can prepare your body. Qualitatively, those are the reasons why those numbers are skewed so significantly in favor of quarterbacks not getting hurt on designed runs. So that's not it. Okay, well, I just don't want Josh Allen to be the source of our running game. Okay, I don't want Josh Allen to be the source of our running game either. What would you have preferred to do otherwise? The traditional running game wasn't going to work. Well, Bruce, we started running Josh Allen right off the bat. Right at the very beginning of the game, we were running Josh Allen. So we didn't even wait to see if the traditional running game was going to work. Good. Good is my answer to that. Why on earth would I waste time and waste snaps smashing my head against a wall against a tough, stout-run New York Jets defense when I already know that's not going to work? You know what I call that? Game planning. Call it game planning. Let's not do something that we already know isn't going to work and just pray that this is the week it looks different. Instead, let's do something that gives us an advantage. And specifically, if you have a really good run defense, let's get on the edge with our quarterback and let's get the numbers advantage because running with your quarterback gives you a numbers advantage. And sometimes when qualitatively, you lack the ability to compete up front with really talented Jets down linemen, you need to get the numbers advantage to win. How do you do that? Running the quarterback. It's a good game plan. You also can't be shocked. Assistant quarterback coach Shea Tierney worked with Chip Kelly in Philadelphia. He knows all about quarterback runs. He knows all about spreading teams out to get running games working. That You know what that is? That's mature play calling versus novice play calling. You know, sometimes you tell a kid, hey, that's hot, don't touch it. And they don't listen to you. They touch it anyway and they go, look, oh, how is that hot? That's hot. Adults don't have to touch it to know that it's hot. And mature play calling doesn't have to do it to know it won't work. Let's come into the game with that already planned out so we can have success earlier rather than having to bash our head against the wall and then adjust. All we're doing by doing that is wasting time and wasting plays. That's high quality game planning. And I'm for it. Now let's talk about the fumbles. I don't want him doing that because he fumbles. Okay? That's an execution problem for Josh. He needs to not fumble. The solution to this isn't saying, don't ask Josh to do those things. Because if we do those things, 
we just walk into the game with no running game. And we handcuff the ability of our quarterback to provide you an added dynamic on offense that can help offset any problems he might have throwing the football consistently accurately. So you're handcuffing your offense and you're handcuffing your quarterback by doing that. No, thank you. I think it's easier just to have Josh protect the ball. Well, you know, Bruce, he hasn't been very good at protecting the ball. And you're not wrong. But that's part of what you get when you have big, mobile quarterbacks who can take hits. Roethlisberger has six seasons of nine fumbles or more. Donovan McNabb, who we've talked about being a potential Josh Allen comp, if he hits a ceiling, eight seasons of eight or more fumbles. McNair had three seasons of 12 or more and many others at seven more. Brett Favre had seven seasons of 10 or more. Cam Newton had three seasons of nine or more. Stats courtesy of Greg Tomset, cover one. So maybe that's the argument. That's part of what you get. Will we like to see him fumble less? Yes. But that's part of what you get with big, strong quarterbacks who can extend a play. When you extend a play, big things can happen and bad things can happen. It's the two B's of play extension and operating outside of structure. You know what's really operating outside of structure? Quarterback runs. Okay, well, final point, Bruce. I appreciate what you've said here in defense of quarterback runs, but I got one more thing. It's just badly timed. Okay, we were up 21 to nothing. We don't need to be doing that. Okay, counterpoint. If you're up 21 to nothing, does the running game need go away? I would say no. If anything, the running game becomes more important as the game goes along because you want to kill more clock. So if the running game doesn't stop becoming important up 21 to nothing, and you're not going to get any meaningful running game from your running backs, then you still have to use the quarterback run even when you're up 21 nothing. You don't just magically stop. It's part of the game plan and nothing about the game plan changed just because you're up 21 nothing. The things that you want to do to be effective are still there and the things you think are going to be ineffective are still there. Nothing changed. You're up 21 to nothing, yeah. But qualitatively, all the things that you came into the game thinking would be effective are still present. So I don't think that's a real point either. So we've established he's not more likely to get hurt. We've established his fumbles, while problematic, are not outside the norm, are not crazy outliers. Not so significant that we would shut off that entire section of our playbook. And we've established that being up 21-0 doesn't mean you stop. The quarterback runs are fine, in my opinion, based on what I just established. I have no problem with the quarterback runs. So that's Josh Allen's day in its entirety. But here's what I do have a problem with. I have a problem with the narrative. I have the problem with a specific subsection of the general populace and football media and analyst who simply flat out refuse to acknowledge the positives that are coming. You guys know me. I think I've had a very, very fair take on Josh Allen since the beginning. I've been very open. 
But the issue that we're having with this subsection of media slash analysts is that they're burning the bridges so badly with not only Bills fans, but other fan bases because of the hyperbolic and inflammatory nature of their statements that long after Josh Allen has proven that he's either the guy or not the guy, that fan base won't come back. In the interest of short-term clickbait, they have sacrificed their long-term integrity and their long-term intellectual honesty. If Josh Allen ends up being a bust, or if Josh Allen ends up being the franchise quarterback, my listener base for this podcast will stay with me. Do you know why? Not because I was wishy-washy and I refused to take a stance. Because I was fair and open to criticism and open to being wrong if necessary. And I evaluate the data as it comes to me. If you say as an organization that you are a data-driven organization, then there is no room for hyperbolic or inflammatory statements in your vernacular. Zero. There's no room for trying to get a rise out of people or having a fan base take the bait. Because what you've done is you've shot your credibility in the foot just for the sake of trying to get some short-term clicks and some short-term listens. And I'm not okay with it. I'm not okay with it at all. I think some measured, controlled, realistic analysis is necessary when it's open to new information. I'm not saying that there always has to be two sides of every story. I'm saying that inflammatory statements like the worst throw in NFL history or a parody of an NFL quarterback prospect these things that are designed for hot tickiness. I don't understand how on earth you can be somebody who says that you're part of a data-driven company and then come out with hot takes. I don't get that at all. The data is supposed to temper your takes because nothing is ever as bad as it seems and nothing is ever as good as it seems. And the film and the data in combination will tell you those things. But if you're not responsible with your vernacular and you're not responsible with the words that come out of your mouth, you're going to kill your ability to be perceived as anything other than a hot take artist. And I have no patience for it. Rant over for now. I reserve the right to come back. So let's talk about Brian Dable. Brian Dable's game plan was a masterpiece. That's right. I just said I wasn't going to use strong vernacular, and I did. There are a couple things that correlate very heavily to offensive success. Last year, when there was an article written on which head coach uses analytics the most based on certain factors, a few of those factors popped up in the Bills' offensive game plan against the Jets week one. Play action passing, passing on early downs, and plays that incorporated motion. Last year, Josh Allen threw a below average percentage of his passes from play action, even though qualitatively he was markedly better from play action and almost never threw play action from the gun. 
We open week one with a lot of motion and a lot of play action from the gun. And shockingly enough, Josh Allen is incredibly efficient. Look at what a heavy play action attack did with Ryan Tannehill in Tennessee. He became the most efficient quarterback in football last year. Now we can have a separate argument as to whether or not he's capable of playing well outside of the play action structure, but there are some things you can do to make the world a little bit easier for your quarterback. We've talked about this when we talk about Matt Nagy's offense in Chicago and making the quarterback's job easier. Jimmy Garoppolo in San Francisco, making the quarterback's job easier. And I said this offseason that Brian Dable's offense has historically been for Josh Allen like throwing him in the deep end because he wasn't making the job easier for Josh Allen. But on Sunday, Dable did. Play action, screen game, motion. The play action helps him hold linebackers during the play. The motion helps him identify coverage pre-play. And the screen passes help him generate easy yardage that does not rely on him to make throws down the field. All three of those things were on display week one. In addition to the fact, as previously mentioned, Brian Dable did not bash his head against the brick wall that is the New York Jets run defense. What more did you expect him to do? The Bills led the NFL in play action attempts week one with 18. After being below average in play action usage last year. Those things are correlative. One of the reasons why Josh Allen had a career day is because Brian Dable did things to make his job easier. I am not here for your Dable hate this week. I am all about hating on Josh Allen when he does something bad and when he has a bad game and all about hating on Brian Dable when he does something bad and has a bad game. Today is not that day. Not for Brian Dable. What do we say to hate? Not today, hate. Not today. We've talked about Allen. We've talked about Dable. We're going to take a quick break. Then we're going to come back and we're going to wrap up the rest of the narratives for this game. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. 
That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. We talked about Dable. We talked about Allen. But wait, there's more. The eccentric, reclusive neighbor of Bill's Mafia, Bruce Nolan, has more to tell you. Cody Ford is the right guard. Cody Ford, at first watch for me, did not impress me. At second watch, he impressed me a little bit more. I would say he had some bad reps and development is needed. But overall, I can see promise with Cody Ford at right guard, much more so than I saw at tackle. When he's uncovered in pass protection, for example, he doesn't get any drop away from the line of scrimmage. So when he goes to find work, his angles are all bad and it opens up lanes behind him for somebody who's on the center or is on the right tackle. Speaking of right tackle, Daryl Williams played really well. There was some question as to whether or not he was capable of regaining his form. And I think he played really well. Deion Dawkins played really well too. The offensive line did really, really well. I think Cody Ford was the worst of them and he wasn't terrible. So that's very encouraging from an offensive line as a whole. On the other side of the line, Ed Oliver was very good. He was held on the first play of the game and they didn't call it. But remember, only 18 holding penalties were called across the NFL in week one. Last year, it was 82 week one. That's unbelievable difference. One of the reasons why you thought to yourself, hey, you know, this product isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be is because the refs called less holding penalties by far than they typically do. And Ed Oliver was one of the people who suffered because of that because he got held on the first play of the game. Andre Roberts. You can't see me, but I'm sipping my tea. I'm sipping. I don't, I don't really drink hot tea, really. I'm more of a green tea guy and a flavored water sort of dude. Not really a coffee drinker. But you can't see me, but I'm sipping it. A punt returner's job is to maximize offensive starting field position through three things. Their ability to actually return the punt or the kick, their decision-making, and ball security. Andre Roberts is good at all three. Punt return average by itself, or kick return average by itself, is not fully inclusive of the contributions that a returner makes to a football team. Andre Roberts was very good. And he had a 14-yard average on punt return. He wasn't very good because of only that average. 
It's because he consistently makes the right decisions. And that stuff is not going to show up in a lot of statistics because it's opportunity cost. It's the same thing that I talk about with quarterbacks, where there is no metric to describe what throw you should have made that you didn't make. There's no metric for that. So if you check the ball down on third and 13 and you get 12 yards, your yards per attempt went up, your completion percentage went up, but it was probably a bad play because you had another player open maybe and you should have made that throw. It's the same thing with deciding when the fair catch, deciding when to let the ball bounce, securing it, not fumbling it. Things like that. Do I bring this out of the end zone? Do I not bring this out of the end zone? Then actually returning it. All these things go together to contribute to offensive starting field position. And Andre Roberts did a good job. Sean McDermott, very, very low key, clearly uses analytics on game day. And I love to see it. We have a new game day coach, and I was very interested to see what effect, if any, this would have on Sean McDermott. And what I noticed, he's much more consistent in his decision making than he was last year. We went for it on fourth and one from our own 48, which I was very pleased to see. We didn't waste timeouts. One of the things I really like about Sean McDermott is even when he's on defense and it's coming to the end of the game where we're not going to need the timeouts because we're ahead, we're not going to need the timeouts to use them the same way that a team from behind would need the timeouts to stop the clock and keep a drive going. So instead, he uses the timeouts to get an extra look on defense. We've talked about this before. If he knows, I'm not going to need these timeouts. I'm up by three scores, but I really want a good look at this because I really don't want them to score here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a significant down. Maybe it's third and 13. And you know they're going to roll out their best possible play for that down. He's going to see the formation, the personnel grouping, and then he's going to call timeout. And now the offense has to use their second best play for that. It's just a little thing that Sean McDermott does that I really enjoy when it comes to timeout usage. In addition, kicking the field goal when you're up 14, even though it's fourth and goal on the one, is the right call. And he made the right call. Because at that section of the game, specifically three minutes, you could still imagine a world where they can get a fluky touchdown, an onside kick, and be in position to score again. We've all seen this. We call it billzing. Three scores, the game is essentially over. Two scores, the game is probably over. Kick the field goal. He made the right call. I think these things and the decisiveness by which he used these things is probably an indication that the game day coach is helping. Corey Bohorkas, number one in the NFL in expected points added from flipping the field position on punting. For at least this week, congratulations, Corey. You're here. You're here for another week. You have survived and advanced, Corey Bohorkas. And you have escaped the wrath of Bruce. But not everyone was that lucky on today's podcast. Not everyone escaped the wrath of Bruce. But you did because you listened to this pod. And I really appreciate that. If you are new to this pod, please do me a favor. Please rate, please review, please subscribe to the podcast channel, and then tell a friend. 
that you had a good time listening to this pod. I have really enjoyed doing this for you guys. I'm going to continue to enjoy doing it into the future. And I have been overwhelmed with the positive feedback that you have given me. Whether we disagree or agree, we have shown each other grace. We have come and had positive, meaningful discussions. And it means a lot to me. Thank you so much from your weird, eccentric, reclusive neighbor, Bruce Nolan. This is me signing off by saying, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings. from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.